0: Hello, Dreamers, and welcome to this week's episode. Before we get started, I have a few quick notes about the show. This is an independent, ad-free podcast, which means I depend solely on you, the listeners, to keep the show moving, and there are a couple of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts or whichever directory you get your shows on. You can recommend us in true crime discussion groups, or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, And if you have an extra dollar or two a month, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon. And in doing so, you will gain access to dozens of exclusive, full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And you don't have to be subscribed at the $5 or $10 levels. Every subscriber gets to listen. And if a subscription is not something that you're interested in, but you would still like to make a contribution to me and the puppies, you can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week I would like to thank Angela F, Kate G, Roxy C, Anthony V, Tiffany C, Allison M, Mindy E, Jamie Lee, Sam G, Tony C, Layla C, Yannick S, Paula S and Harriet N for either becoming a new subscriber, coming back or raising your pledge to the next tier. Some of your names are repeats and that's because you did something on Patreon that triggered an email to me. So thank you for updating your credit card information or whatever it was that you did. If you have subscribed in the last two weeks and you have not yet heard your shout out, it will be up soon. Most likely in the next episode after this one. Also, at the end of this episode, please stay tuned for a promo from the Strictly Stalking podcast. All right. Let's get started with this 236th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Brittany Murphy and Simon Monjack.
1: Where to One nine seven. was the address of the emergency? 1895 Rising Grand Road. What's the phone number you're
2: calling from? See? Tell me exactly what
1: happened. Oh, somebody's passed out. Somebody what? Somebody's, my daughter's passed out. She's, she's, they're
2: doing mouth-to-mouth. Please go. Oh, quick, oh, okay. please. Okay, okay. All right,
1: we're going to, how old is your daughter? She's 30. Please she's help.
2: She's 30? Okay, she's with you now? Yes, there's someone
1: coming.
2: Yeah, ma'am. You don't have to yell. We're going to send somebody out there, okay? Please. Is she awake? Please,
1: no. Is she breathing? No.
2: Okay, so somebody's doing mouth-to-mouth?
1: Yes.
2: Okay, all right. Did, ma'am, did somebody see what happened? No. <laughs> okay, listen to me carefully. Is there a are you right by her now
1: yes, yes are you right by her now yes her okay, listen
2: carefully i want you to lay her on her back
1: She is already, on the floor Is ready
2: no pillows under the head remove any pillows
1: is there any, okay no pillows under the head. no no pillows under the head okay. okay now i want you to
2: take a look inside of her mouth is there anything kneel next to her and look inside of her, her mouth and check for food
1: or she vomit still tons of stuff tons there, tons of water
2: okay turn her to the tons side water, cup, turn her honey. to the side and wipe Nose. Is there anything in her mouth?
1: Yes. Is there anything in her mouth now? Oh my God. Is there anything in her mouth? God. Is there anything in her mouth, ma'am? No, I don't think so. Okay, so
2: listen to me carefully. Place your hand on her forehead and your other hand under her neck and tilt her head
1: back. Place your hand under her forehead, the other hand on your neck and tilt her head back. Put your ear next to her mouth. Put your ear next to her mouth. Can you feel or hear any breathing? Can you feel or hear any breathing? Can you feel or hear any breathing?
2: Yes or no, ma'am? Hello? Hello?
1: Hello? Just a minute, please.
2: It just takes a second. Can you feel or hear any breathing? Can
1: you hear anything,
2: Simon? Yes or no?
1: Yes or no. Okay,
2: all right, listen to me carefully. I'm gonna tell you how to do compressions, okay? Okay. All right, Uh, I'm gonna tell you how to do compressions. Make sure she's flat on her back on the ground.
1: Flat on her back. Okay.
2: Place the heel of your hand on the breastbone (laughs) Taking any kind of medications at all?
1: what Is she taking? No, no, th-
2: no medications, no. nothing. You need to keep pumping on her chest,
1: ma'am. Oh, no. <laughs> hold on, hold on, please. I, I just want to make sure that the other that the, the phone, other we' phone ringing. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> We're counting yet, baby. Three twenty. <laughs> okay, that's the gate. Are they there now? Yeah. Are they there now? Yes, okay, still,
2: okay,, still, still pumping her chest. got keep doing it until they take over,
0: okay.: That frantic 911 call came into the dispatch center on Sunday, December 20th, 2009, at approximately eight in the morning. The caller was Sharon Murphy, the mother of 32-year-old actress and singer Brittany Murphy. The call originated from the Hollywood Hills home that Brittany had purchased from Britney Spears in 2003. And shared with her mother and her husband, Simon Monjak, a British director, producer, screenwriter, and makeup artist. One of the things that kind of bugged me for a minute about the call was that Sharon provided the wrong age when asked how old her daughter was. She said that she was 30, but Brittany was actually 32. I don't know why she did that. However, the more I thought about it, the less it bothered me. Brittany had just turned 32 the previous month in a panic. I might have blurted out the same thing. I do have to sometimes stop and remember ages of people that are close to me. I'm probably not going to stop and think about it too hard when I'm trying to save the life of somebody that I love. As Sharon was giving information to 911 and answering the dispatcher's questions, Simon had come into the bathroom and began the process of giving Brittany CPR. Within a few minutes, the paramedics arrived and were shown to the bathroom where Brittany was found unresponsive. They found Simon still giving chest compressions. Brittany apparently had vomited some fluid and her mother described it as looking to be like water. They immediately took over the administration of the life-saving procedures as they were also beginning to realize that they were attending to someone very, very famous. When they began checking on Brittany's vitals and for signs of life, the situation was not looking very hopeful at all. But after checking for a pulse a couple of times, one of the paramedics did in fact feel one, barely. So they hurried her out of the house and into the ambulance so they could try to get her to the emergency room where they could hopefully save this young woman's life. She was so, so close to death. But there was still a sliver of hope as long as there was a faint pulse. Brittany was rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center with Simon and Sharon following closely behind in their vehicle. They made it to the hospital, but all efforts to save Brittany's life were futile. She went into cardiac arrest and was pronounced dead about two hours after the call to 911 was made at 10.04 in the morning. Sharon Murphy's one and only child was gone. Brittany Murphy was only 32 years old. Brittany's parents, Sharon and Angelo Bertolotti, met sometime in the 1970s. Angelo is from New York City, and he came across as a very stereotypical Italian New Yorker. However, he made his living owning and operating nightclubs down in Florida which is how he met Sharon, who was of, or is of, Irish and Slavic descent. Sharon was an employee at one of Angelo's establishments in Florida. They got married, they had Brittany in 1977, but by 1980, they were divorced. Angelo was known to have some pretty strong ties to the mob, specifically the Genovese crime family in Greenwich Village, New York. And Angelo's name does pop up in some court documents dating back to the 1970s. Let's briefly explore Angelo's mobby background. On January 6, 1975, Angelo, along with 29 other people, were indicted on an assortment of federal narcotics law violations, including conspiracy to distribute and possession with intent to distribute Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 narcotics. Schedule 1 drugs include marijuana, heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and magic mushrooms. Schedule 2 drugs include cocaine, methamphetamines, oxycodone, Adderall, Ritalin, and Vicodin. The information that I got about Angela's background comes from appeals court documents. Seven of the 29 defendants appealed, and it went into all of the details of the crimes that they were convicted of, However, I'm just going to skip to Angelo's parts, and the link to these appellate documents will be in the show notes. So from May of 1973 through September of 1979, Angelo was involved in what the FBI called the Florida Quartet's two-kilogram purchase. These four guys, the Quartet, including Angelo and another guy named Joseph Camperlingo, met with a pair of drug dealers in New York sometime towards the end of May or early June of 1973, indicating their desire to purchase a kilo of cocaine. One of the four said that he had somewhere between 17000 and $19,000 to make the purchase. So a call was made for that kilo to be delivered. But the next day, the delivery guy came with two kilos instead of one. One of the kilos was pure cocaine, The other one was diluted. So with a little bit of persuasion, they agreed to purchase both. They'd pay for the pure stuff and make payments later on for the diluted stuff. Later on in June, two of the New York guys traveled to Florida to collect the balance of the money owed on the second kilo. An additional partial payment of $5,000 was made. The following month, they went back down to Florida and met with all four of the quartet, including Angelo, to try to collect the rest of the money. They had a dispute about the quality of the diluted kilo, but ultimately they agreed that Angelo and his guys would give them about five or 600 pounds of marijuana, which would be credited towards the money that they owed for the cocaine. They met again in August to work out the details of the deal and then shortly thereafter, Angelo, along with two of his guys, delivered the 600 pounds of marijuana down there in Florida. And from there, it was driven up to New York in a camper and delivered. So, of all the indictments handed down, that was the only one that Angelo was officially linked to, the 600-pound marijuana deal. But because the government had bundled all of the cases into one for the sake of convenience, Angelo was technically convicted on a bunch of other conspiracy charges that he had no involvement with. So he, along with six others, appealed their conviction because they simply had nothing to do with most of the crimes that they were convicted of. Because of Angelo's overlapping involvement in more than one of the proven conspiracies made it glaringly prejudicial against him. The appellate court found clear evidence and prejudice and stated, Criminals they may have been, but their guilt did not permit violation of their right to not be tried en masse for the conglomeration of distinct and separate offenses by others. Also, there were audio tapes of 55 intercepted phone calls that contained obscenities racial slurs and substantially irrelevant banter that were played for the jury the government said that the conversations were being introduced as evidence of narcotics negotiations but they were nothing more than a series of discussions about defrauding someone out of their money none of the appellants including Brittany's dad appeared in the recordings or were ever mentioned and had no relevance to any of the other transactions proven at trial. The prejudicial effect of requiring the jury to spend two days to listening to obviously shocking and inflammatory discussions about assault, kidnapping, guns, and narcotics cannot be underestimated. No defendant ought to have a jury which is considering his guilt or innocence. Hear this sort of evidence, absence of proof, connecting him to the subject matter discussed. No such proof was ever convincingly produced because we cannot say that the errors committed have no influence on the jury's verdict. We reverse the appellant's convictions and Angelo's was one of the ones that was remanded for a new trial. Ultimately, Angelo spent about a total of nine to 12 years in federal prison in Georgia for things ranging from racketeering, drug trafficking, and counterfeiting. And all of that time that he spent in prison was after Brittany was born. And apparently ever since, he had been a law-abiding citizen. And you know what, Dreamers? I found all of that extremely interesting because of all of the cases that we discuss, it is so rare that a defendant actually wins an appeal that I thought, I need to share this with you because it was such a unique situation. But the truth was, is that the government like really messed up this case. But still, I thought it was a neat change of pace for the criminals in our stories to actually win an appeal. Anyway, Brittany was said to have been deeply embarrassed and ashamed of her father's criminal background and apparently fully cut ties with him after she became famous. We've always known her as Brittany Murphy with her mother's last name. Her gravestone has her name etched in it as Brittany Murphy Monjack. But in several places online and in the media, including on Wikipedia, Brittany's father's last name is often listed next to hers in parentheses. Her father, Angelo, did pass away on January 22nd, 2019, at the age of 92. On his WikiTree page, it reads, Angelo Bertolotti, also known as A.J., is a World War II combat veteran wounded in the service of his country. Sharon Murphy met A.J., who went to work for him where he owned strip bars and discos in Florida and Georgia. The young Sharon was attracted to the money and influence of the dark side of society, where A.J. grew up in the mean streets of New York City in an Italian family that was very, very well connected. AJ, in the tradition of The Sopranos, Goodfellas, and The Godfather, was incarcerated, but paved the way financially for Britney and her mother to move to California to pursue Britney's dream to become a star in the film business. So I didn't like the way that it was worded in his, on his page, but it suggested that despite everything that's been said, Sharon and Brittany were very well taken care of by AJ. Sharon would dispute that. After she divorced Angelo, she moved up to Edison, New Jersey. That's where she worked in advertisement and raised Brittany until she was a teenager. After that, they moved to California to pursue Brittany's acting dreams. In her interview with Larry King in 2010, Sharon said that she was a single mom, that she raised Britney in New Jersey on her own, and that her father was never in the picture, emphasis on the never. According to Britney's first acting coach, Britney was a natural on the stage. She had aspirations of being on Broadway and then in Hollywood or vice versa. That Sharon never pushed her daughter into acting, that it was all Britney's idea, that Britney aspired to be a star, and when the time was right, when Britney had accomplished all that she could in New Jersey, Sharon talked to her and said, if this is really what you want to do, let's go to California. And Brittany was absolutely positive that she wanted to be an actor. So Sharon quit her job and she moved them, both of them to LA. Within hours of Brittany's sudden passing, the news quickly spread and the media began descending upon her Hollywood Hills home and everybody was asking How does a 32-year-old woman suddenly drop dead? Speculation began to swirl particularly around her husband, Simon, to whom she had been married to since April of 2007, a little more than two and a half years before she died. At the time when Brittany and Simon got married, nobody had ever heard of the guy. And even after he became Mr. Brittany Murphy, the world continued to hear very little about him. It was said that they weren't seen in public very often together. Pictures of them, say, out and about in Los Angeles, casually getting coffee or going shopping, were almost never taken by paparazzi. But they were always together at events, on the red carpet, seated together in the audience of whatever thing that they were attending. And from nearly every picture that I've seen of the two of them online, Brittany looks really happy. She's all smiles. She stares at Simon the way Kanye stares at Kanye. Simon, on the other hand, doesn't always seem to smile very much in pictures. He may be having a paltry grin, but mostly his affect is flat. You barely notice him because Brittany is so stunningly and classically gorgeous in every single photograph of her with him on the red carpet. Simon, he's kind of oafish looking. When he's standing next to her, he's quite big and portly and tall. He's not the handsomest guy in the world, but looks are only skin deep. And to me, you know, he really didn't look all that healthy in general. That's just my opinion. In lots of those pictures, Simon looks very tired and pale. He didn't look like a guy that got out much or had that much sun. His hair always looked a little bit disheveled and not in a ruggedly handsome Gordon Ramsay kind of a way, but like a just rolled out of bed and I haven't washed my hair in a week kind of a way. But then, it could be the flash of the cameras, the angles, whatever the case, Brittany always looked perfect, at least to me anyway. I adored her, and I was deeply saddened by her death. It didn't make any sense, and frankly to me, neither did her husband, but I don't know them. I don't know him, I don't know her, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but on the surface of it all, Brittany looked like she was happy with him, at least in the photos. Then Brittany was suddenly dead, and rumors abound. What happened? How is this 32-year-old starlet dead? she had an eating disorder, that she was anorexic or bulimic or both, that the way she died so unexpectedly, this is probably a drug overdose, and what's up with her mysterious husband? Who is that guy? He seems kind of creepy. All of this information about Simon's shady background started bubbling to the surface. He was a businessman and a filmmaker, a screenwriter, among other things. In recent years, he had been steeped in some legal issues, He had been taken into custody on some credit card fraud charges in 2005, but those were dropped. He was successfully sued by a lender for $470,000 after he had been evicted four times from their homes that they owned. And in February of 2007, just two months before he married Brittany, Simon was jailed for nine days because his visa had expired. Rumors began to spread about him, just as much as they were spreading about Brittany and her untimely death. The gentleman who oversaw many of the high-profile deaths that occurred in Los Angeles County at the time was Assistant Chief Ed Winter. He was summoned to Brittany's home, and he met with Simon and Brittany's mom, Sharon. In an interview that Winter gave to the HBO documentary entitled, What Happened, Brittany Murphy?, He said that he spoke to the both of them at their home some hours after she had passed away, that Sharon was seated on the sofa, that she was sobbing, but then he said she would stop and she would whisper something quietly to Simon and then she would begin sobbing again. He said that it looked as though Simon was under the influence of something and that it seemed he didn't really have his wits about him. He was out of it, but to me, Simon kind of looked like that all the time like I said, on the red carpet, pale and tired, you know. Uh, Assistant Chief Winter said that Simon was pacing around the living room. He didn't seem like he was all there. And the whole thing just gave off this really suspicious vibe. He described it as his hair standing up on the back of his neck, just being in the room with them. Simon and Sharon told Winter that the night before, Brittany had been up late and that she wasn't feeling well. She was exhibiting flu-like symptoms, that they had been on vacation recently in Puerto Rico, and while there, Brittany had fallen ill. So when she got up on the morning of December 20th, she went into her bathroom, and a little while later, Sharon discovered her laying on the floor unresponsive. What Sharon and Simon did next, really, did nothing but delay Brittany getting the help that she really needed, which was to call 911 and to start CPR, they decided to pick her up off the floor and they took her over to the shower and ran cold water over her to see if that would revive her. So Winter couldn't help but wonder why Britney's illnesses were allowed to carry on for so long without her having sought medical attention. Why didn't they immediately pick up the phone and call 911? Why did they not begin CPR right away? These are some of the things that bothered Ed Winter a lot and. It bothered a lot of people. In speaking to Simon in the hours following Brittany's death, as he was talking about the symptoms that she was having in the days leading up to her death, Winter noted that the way that Simon acted and spoke was kind of strange. And he made that assessment just by looking at Simon that he may have been under the influence. And to me, it seems kind of hard to say because Simon was like that a lot. He was awkward in the way that he spoke and his mannerisms. So who knows if it's because he's on something or if because that's his baseline. He was a strange guy. In interviews, the way that he talked, the way that he worded things, his whole demeanor, it was actually pretty consistent each time. He didn't really change much. However, I have to ask, how is somebody who just lost their wife supposed to look and act and feel winter said simon wouldn't sit still he was pacing around the room he rambled but he was also very flat and stoic i mean yeah that's kind of how simon appeared in subsequent interviews unless he was in a tv studio seated and talking to the interview across the table he did tend to move around and ramble winter did give a brief comment to the media following Britney's death. There was already speculation that this was going to be an overdose. So they were asking him about that. They were wondering because when you have a seemingly healthy 32-year-old woman, it's the only thing that seemed to make sense. But here's the thing, that term gets thrown around a lot. Seemingly healthy, 32-year-old woman. Yes, she was 32. Most 32-year-olds are generally healthy. But Brittany Murphy was not healthy at all. She didn't even seem healthy, but people keep saying that just based on the virtue of her being only 32 years old. In recent years, Brittany had appeared to have lost a lot of weight. Being so thin, being in the entertainment industry, it's not uncommon for these stars to fall into eating disorders and excessive drug use. It happened before and it'll keep on happening. Brittany did lose a noticeably large amount of weight. She became visibly much thinner than she had been. She changed her look. She went from dark hair to blonde. She added extensions. She was doing all of these amazing, sexy photo shoots. And all of it happened years before she met Simon. After Clueless, Brittany did not want to be the cute, lovable tie anymore. She wanted to be what she thought Hollywood wanted her to be. But, you know, she was still uniquely herself. She had this vintage, time-honored, glamorous look that she pulled off so effortlessly. And Well, in my opinion, anyway. So, former Papal Magazine journalist Sarah Hamill, who worked for the magazine's Los Angeles outlet, was tasked with finding out what she could about the days leading up to Brittany's death by trying to speak to people who knew Brittany that would be able to provide a bit of insight. There were a variety of things that people said to Sarah what they reported to her. The details were sometimes scattered and vague as different people had different things to say. But the one thing that everybody seemed to agree on was that Simon Monjack was no good for Brittany. They had only met the year prior to tying the knot in 2006. Simon was mostly known for being a screenwriter. The media largely ignored him because if he was ever spotted out and about with Brittany, the paparazzi focused on her always. They never had an interest in Simon. After they got married in April of 2007, the couple tended to stay inside their home most of the time, rarely leaving for anything. Whenever they were spotted, the media and photographers kind of got this vibe that he was like this older guy who was about seven and a half years older than Brittany that seemed to be controlling her. But when Brittany died, that's when everybody wanted to know who Simon Monjack was. There was lots of talk about him. Who was he? They hadn't even been married for three years at the time of her death. And there was even one reporter that called Brittany a fading starlet and him an Unknown. Which, I don't necessarily think that Brittany was fading. She was still doing her voiceover work for a long time for A King of the Hill. She was still doing other films, and she had other things in the works at the time of her death. I don't think that her career was as big as it had been earlier in the 2000s, but I don't think she was on this like steep downfall Like they made it seem. At least it didn't seem as obvious as other stars that we have witnessed fall from grace. And it may have had something to do with the perception, the optics of it all. With her and Simon being so reclusive. Or maybe it was just him. Maybe the media wanted to tie this whole marriage to Simon in with the sensationalism of the quote-unquote falling star narrative. For their sales and their clicks on the internet. The rumors were that Brittany changed. Everything about her changed as soon as she married Simon. He's the reason that nobody wants to work with her anymore. And you know what else? The moment she died, the headlines completely reversed themselves and suddenly it was Brittany Murphy, rising star, dead at 32. Okay, so media, which is it? Is she rising? Is she falling? Or is it, What gets your article the most internet traffic? What really got the media's hackles up was when it was discovered that Simon did not want an autopsy conducted on Brittany. Assistant Chief Winter did confirm that Simon said that, and he further stated the obvious. What us crime people automatically think when people say no autopsy? That they don't want the pathologist poking around and finding out what's going on inside their bodies? What sorts of substances might be floating around, or even what kind of injuries there may be that aren't visible on the outside. But Simon was told in no uncertain terms that there will be an autopsy because they need to know why Brittany died. In Simon Monjack's defense, he could have wanted to protect Brittany in death. Perhaps there were some substances in her system that he didn't want found out and he didn't want her memory tarnished and simon was jewish contrary to popular belief jewish law does not absolutely prohibit having an autopsy however according to jewish virtual org, it says that some scholars say that autopsies should be strictly forbidden jewish law forbids the despoliation or destruction that was a new SAT word I learned, of a body, once it's deceased, to provide the body with the utmost respect and honor. If a body undergoes mutilating examination in an autopsy, many rabbis deem this practice makes the body impure. Hey, that was Fred growling at me for some reason. Anyway, where was I? Impure? While other scholars argue that saving and preserving lives is one of the highest commandments in the Torah, that if doctors can utilize a deceased body to uncover medical enigmas, it could prevent unnecessary deaths and they argue that performing autopsies is for the benefit of the living. But of course, I say it's also for the benefit of us with inquiring minds who want to know if the husband did it or the wife. So. Nobody gets to hide from the medical examiner, religious beliefs or not. While the media waited on pins and needles for the autopsy results, the speculation continued. Who had everything to gain from Brittany's death? Well, the media made it seem like the answer was Simon, as he continued to live in the Hollywood Hills mansion along with Brittany's mom. And then a series of photographs of the two of them Sharon and Simon, son-in-law and mother-in-law, kind of looking more like a couple that lost a daughter rather than a husband who lost his wife and a mother who lost her daughter. You may have seen the pictures and they do seem kind of weird. If my husband died, there is no way in hell I would pose for loving pictures with his family because that is just not a thing. But these pictures, they just seem very odd. And the two of them appear to be a little bit creepily close, closer than they should be, to a point where they exude all this inappropriateness. And while I've said it once already in this episode, and I'll say it again, we just don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Living in the mansion, living with his mother-in-law, is this really a motive for Simon? It doesn't sound like he needed to get rid of Brittany in order to have that. I don't know, it's just an opinion, but killing Brittany Murphy is kind of like butchering the goose that lays the golden eggs and turning it into a holiday roast. I don't see there to be any reason for Simon to want Brittany dead. That doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't play a role in what happened to her. I just don't think that the intent was there. The media, however, already had this preconceived notion of Simon being this super-controlling husband that wouldn't let Brittany out of the house, especially without him. So when she died, it only fanned those rumor flames. Also in the wake of her death, Simon didn't really shy away from the media either. He did speak to journalists, and he went on Larry King Live with Sharon. So he was trying. It just wasn't really going well. And because of the way that they were spectacularly failing in the media, Simon and Sharon, they decided to hire a publicist about one month after Brittany died, and his name was Roger Neal. Simon was the one who reached out to him because the press was becoming really overwhelming, especially with all of the conjecture and the rumors that were flying around, and they wanted to hire someone to handle things for the both of them. So once Roger had set up an appointment to meet with Sharon and Simon, he did a Google search, and one of the first things he saw was Sharon and Simon's cringy couple's photos. He, too, right away thought that it was all wrong for them to have posed like that together, and he wasn't wrong. And as a publicist, he saw right away why things had gone the way that they did in the wake of Brittany's death. And as for the Larry King interview, yeah that was cringe too. I thought about isolating the cringiest parts of it all, but I watched the interview and the segment is about 30 minutes long, a little bit longer than that. So I figured I would just insert it here for you. If you want to listen, you can. If you want to skip ahead, you can do that too. And I'll tell you after the clip what Simon said that made everybody go, wait, what? The interview took place on January 14th, 2010, I believe. But Larry released this particular episode shortly after the coroner released Brittany's autopsy findings, which was towards the end of February. So the report, the autopsy report, which I found on autopsyfiles.org, stated that the findings were as follows. Autopsy revealed a bilateral acute pneumonia consistent with community-acquired infection two additional factors that cannot be ruled out as playing contributory roles. Blood tests revealed a severe hypochromic, microcytic, oh my God, why did I say I was going to read this? Microcytic anemia and that her history of heavy periods is most likely the cause of this type of chronic iron deficiency. This anemia would account for her recent complaints of tiredness, lightheadedness, and shortness of breath. Chronic anemia leads to a weakened state of health and would increase her vulnerability to infection. The second contributory factor is multiple drug intoxication. Uh, Here we go with the drugs. (laughs) Multiple medications were present in the blood with elevated levels of hydrocodone, acetaminophen, chlorpheniramine. I hope I said that right. L-methamphetamine was also present. It should be noted that L-methamphetamine is not an illegal drug. It is a component of some inhalers. Street meth is D-methamphetamines. None of this or any other illegal drugs were detected. The possible physiological effects of elevated levels of these medications cannot be discounted, especially in her weakened state. Therefore, the manner of death is accident. Okay, so now I will play that Larry King interview from January of 2010. Like I said, it was conducted before the autopsy report was completed, but it aired afterwards. If you wanna skip it, it's between 35 and 38 minutes long, give or take. Afterwards, I will share with you the cringy statement that Simon Monjak made that had his publicist and everybody else who saw it go, yikes. Here is the Larry King interview.
3: Tonight, primetime exclusive, Brittany Murphy's husband and mother on her shocking death at 32. We started
4: being mean on
3: her. She said, Mom, I'm
5: dying, I love
3: you. The coroner says drugs played a role and she didn't have to die. Do you fear the toxicology might say an overdose of prescription medication? No. Is that possible? No. No. Brittany Murphy's loved ones share their side of the story and what they witnessed on the day she died.
4: It's just,
3: you know, you saw the life go out of her. Next on Larry King Live. Good evening. The Los Angeles coroner ruled Thursday that Brittany Murphy's death was accidental. A combination of pneumonia and iron deficiency and what he calls multiple drug intoxication. By the way, these were not illegal drugs. We interviewed Brittany's husband Simon Monjack and her mother Sharon Murphy on January 14th, before the cause of death was known. Their remarks about drugs and Brittany's health and her lifestyle are even more compelling now that we know what killed her. Let's go back a little, Sharon. Brittany, she always wanted to be in show business, didn't she? As yes. a kid, where yes. did where did she grow up?
4: In New Jersey. Where until she was Edison, New Jersey. I know
3: Edison, New Jersey. Mm-hmm, you do. And you raised her as a single mom. Yes. Yeah. What happened to her dad?
4: Um. Well, uh, he was never um,
3: around. It was just. Us. So she had no father growing no, up. No, right? not at all. Did she always want to be in show business?
4: Yes, and she was very, very tiny, and she just came out of
3: me a show person was she the kind of kid who danced and sang when she was in kindergarten and jumping around that kind of kid she
4: started you know in dance school and musical comedy classes when she was little because she always had so much energy and and it was she just loved it and had so much fun and did regional theater growing up
3: how did you come to bring her out here
4: well when she was 12 and a half um, she the studio that she was uh, studying at, Vern Fowler School of the Performing Arts in New Jersey. Um, There was a playbill on the board and she called and made an appointment with the manager of the person. And I took her in and they uh, accepted her and she went on commercials in New York. And then they were opening up in Los Angeles um, for Um, pilot season so she came out with the chaperone for two months it was the first time she was ever without me
3: so she had training
4: uh you know no
3: no no Jersey yeah what was her first professional break
4: um well she had she did a few commercials when she first started in New York and then um, I think a, a television show. Right after she asked me to come out to Los Angeles, she begged me to come out, and they sold everything within a couple of weeks.
3: and Wow! So you live for her? Yes. As single parents do. There were no other children. No. no. All right. Um, we want to show the audience. If, if you're not familiar with this wonderful talent, her breakout movie role was in the 1995 uh, comedy hit *Clueless*. It starred Alicia Silverstone. Britney plays Alicia's dorky style challenge pal. Here's a clip.
0: Look, I have been in agony the past week, and I can't even believe that I went off the way I did. No, I have been going down a shame spiral. I'm so sorry, Ty. Hello. I'm really
1: sorry. Hello. Oh, now <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and cry. <laughs> Let's
4: never fight again, okay? Oh, totally. Next up,
3: number. She was a natural. I that noticed. was her first movie. Yeah. Well, that meant a lot to her, right? Yeah. It and it, that sort of emerged her in a sense, right? I mean, it yes. blossomed her right on the scene. She got a lot of good reviews. In the years following, she really transformed her looks, right?
4: Yes. She went.
3: To, she became blonde. She became thin. Was that all by design? Um, Not she
4: became thin. She was always the same weight. Um, it's just she went through most um, like young teenagers change like when they're 12 or
3: 13. Was she With difficult? her, it
4: was more 15 or 16. Was she and difficult? She did this when she was 15? Never. No. no. She
3: didn't become one of those I'm a star?
4: Never. No, no. I
3: haven't forgotten so your son. I'm just, just going through it before you knew <laughs> her. All the
4: brushes on me <laughs> no, she was absolutely not. She never went through a teenage period. You know, no. She was just loving and kind and beautiful and.
3: Before we get to the later years, one more scene I want to show you. Uh, As you know, Brittany mostly was associated with lighter roles, but she also took on some darker, more dramatic parts. This is one of the best thrillers I ever saw. It was a great book and a hell of a movie. Don't say a word. Watch.
0: You want what they want. Uh
3: Elizabeth, What who wants?
4: I'll never
0: tell. I'll never tell. Any of you. Any
3: of you. Any of you. After that movie was made, Mike Douglas, who was in, of course, he's the star of that movie, told me how much he thought of your daughter. And what a terrific talent she was. And she made other terrific oh, movies. she loved him, too, so much. Now, how did she meet? How did you come into the picture, Simon? When did you meet? I met Brittany when she was
5: Anne Sharon, and Brittany was 17. So and we kept in touch for all the years. Uh, how would you meet her? I took a photograph. You were a so, photographer? Yeah, part-time. It's a hobby. Oh, that's Um And, uh you know we 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 just became friends and uh it was friendly it was friendly for years yeah you know i visited on sets and see sharon and and uh, you know it was it was very she was infectious an infectious angel the romance was later the romance was later you know there are I, I honestly, Britney didn't sort of date until she was in in her early twenties. Really? You
4: never, no.
5: She just right was Wrapped up in her career. He, it wasn't that. It was the charm was there. She she wasn't. She was a late bloomer, and she was. That's
4: what I was seeing with late blooming. That she wasn't. Like, she was always the smallest in her class and the most petite and the most latest. You know, although highly intelligent, like way above everyone at her level. You
3: can't but be I'm that sorry. good without being intelligent. <laughs>
4: you know,
3: we're going to take a break. And uh, before we go, the autopsy was performed. We're going to ask about that. No evidence of trauma to the body. We'll talk about the death and what happened and how they're dealing with it. Right back with Simon Monjack, Brittany Murphy's husband they were married in a private ceremony in 2007 and her mother Sharon don't go away. How are you doing Simon? How are you holding up? I don't think I am.
5: I don't think either of us are. No. You wake up in the morning and it's like a rebirth. There's, there's not enough time to your dreams be they good or bad when you wake up and I reach out to touch or hold my wife and she isn't
3: there were you surprised at the public outpouring yes reaction to her death was enormous
5: it was unbelievable and I think I think Brittany would have been more surprised than anybody I think there was you know her career by her own admission in the last few years five or six had taken a downturn do you know why? It, it's funny, Brittany and I spoke about this often, and, and there was... Uh, she had her theories. There was a rumor. What was the theory? It was a, the theory was that, 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 that she had upset the wrong people at the
3: wrong time. And uh, there was, uh, you know... Is she the kind of person who said what she thought? Oh yeah, absolutely. That can rub people the wrong way in Hollywood. I, th- I
5: think so, and I think there's also... But she was the kindest, sweetest person. I think it was more that she was too kind, too sweet, too. She she was she was like this bubble that, that that existed in in a plane beyond ours. Do you
3: think there was a downturn, Sharon? And if so, why?
4: Yes, there was uh, for probably the last maybe five years. I got really sick. Um, you know, oh. I had. Um, cancer twice and she had initially taken off to be with me in the hospital and slept there every day for the four weeks, five weeks I was there and was just with me always and you know controlling all the doctors and making sure all the right things were done and you know we just never dreamed that you know we thought it would be me not her
3: To show you how the impact she had, her ex-boyfriend, Ashton Kutcher, and that was a very publicized romance, wrote on his Twitter when when Britney died, Today the world lost a little bit of sunshine. My deepest condolences go out to Britney's family, her husband, and her amazing mother, Sharon. See you on the other side, kid. They got along then, huh? Oh, yeah. They saw
4: each other recently. I mean, there
5: was no, you know... I spoke to Ashton after, after she died and I, it was funny because I, I try and stay off the computer and uh, uh-huh. yeah, Sharon tries to make me stay off the computer <laughs> and Ashton, when I read that, it, it, I read it, I immediately read it to Sharon and I think that was the first time we actually managed a half smile.
4: Yes.
3: Mm-hmm. What about the tabloid stories? Headlines like, Britney's dark final days, Britney's demons, why is her husband and what is he hiding? Oh. What did you make of all of that?
5: Oh, as any man would, with absolute devastation. Were you shocked? Um, no, because when we got married, there's a whole lot of nonsense. I, I, I How th- did you react? I didn't,
4: uh, they kept, I, I never you had the television them? on or... Um, or read anything? No, that he kept me completely away Sh- from everything. Sharon was
5: just very conscious that I wouldn't read too much of them. Let me tell you about Britney's final days, please. This is so—that's just so false and crazy. Britney was—I believe she said—and told me—and her mother, who she had no secrets from—that she and I found love together. Mm-hmm. Whether or not I owed a bank in England over a deal or this or that or the other. <laughs> I paid my own way and Sharon will attest to that oh, yeah. in the home Brittany was lavish with gifts she would go to Jim in Chicago when she went to Louis Vuitton and I got looked at the credit card slip and it said 62,000 and I said you've got to be kidding me and then she says no, it but well, it probably was more And then she says but we've got to get a purse for my mom I said okay and do you do dog clothes so... Was she spoiled? Was she up up pretty like spoiled? It a quarter of a
4: million. She I was not
5: spoiled. She appreciated everything. She yeah. loved clothes. And I loved to dress her. So what were
3: her last days like?
5: Her last days were full of the academy screeners being in a soft pink fluffy Beverly Hills robe. Mama coming and bringing a soup and laying, in, laying on the sofa next to the
3: bed. It wasn't sick. We all
1: watched movies,
5: she yeah.
3: wasn't sick? She had a little laryngitis. Did she have any movie roles lined up? Yes, she did. She did. What happened the day she died? Where were you? I was in bed, um, next
5: to Brittany. Sharon had come down and... You were living in the house? Sharon lived with oh, throughout the month. Yeah, okay. I was the always there. I was always there,
4: and my daughter and I lived together always. And so then, what happened that day? Three, That's
5: why these rumors are so ludicrous. I mean, You to so clear close. them up. It, what happened? It, it, the, what happened that day was Brittany had laryngitis. I have no idea what to do with laryngitis. I'm a rabbi, not a doctor, so I pray instead of prescribe. So I asked Sharon to come down. We'd been talking anyway half the night, so she didn't even upstairs about 2 o'clock. We were planning to move to New York, have a baby.
4: We were talking about names. We
5: were baby. talking about baby names. You were trying to have a baby. No. no we. But you were planning. But it was all part of
3: the... Right after we the we We had allies. this three and a half year romance. All right, let me get a break and then tell us about that terrible day. We'll be right back. We're back with Simon Monjak, Brittany Murphy's husband, and her mother, Sharon. All right, back to that day. So I asked Sharon to come down. Sharon came down. Brittany,
5: for the first time, was almost fighting for air. Her eyes were uh, not right. They were darting off left, right and center. It, let me explain, for, for the record, a declarative statement. My wife had not taken any drugs that could harm her that morning. That
3: is for. A, I will. No drug overdose, sir. Oh, please, oh, Brittany was scared to take. A, a, so she never had a. She drug had a heart pro- no, no, she had a heart much heart. Of our prolapse. So and, she couldn't. I'm so interested. So all she had is the laryngitis leading into that morning.
5: Leading into the morning, and a few days. That morning, she woke up. She couldn't breathe. She went out and get to get some air. Sharon followed her out. Up. I'll say this because I know you can't she said mom I'm dying I love you mom I'm dying I love you she knew she was dying (laughs)
4: this was about an hour before no
5: no no baby this was you've forgotten time and then she ran to the bathroom Britney had Brittany's safe haven was the bathroom I was the most pleased she was in the bathroom that meant she was pulling herself together you know reading Vogue and putting on lipstick and that was Britney, you know. It, and then what? And then Sharon screamed, Simon. Uh, I run as fast as my uh, large frame will take me. And she's on the floor. I reach for, 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 for the chest. I'd watch Sanjay Gupta not a week before. say This is the right way to give CPR. You know, no more mouth to mouth, just the, the, the heel. So I
3: planted we did my did on this show. We had a plastic model here. Right,
5: that's right. That, that was the show. I'm sorry, I apologize. Sorry. Okay. So I knew exactly from, from Dr. Gupta what to do. So I said to Sharon, call 911. There was a slight pulse, ever so faint. And I was just pushing at the rhythm that Dr. Dr. Gupta had counted and poor Sharon was stuck on the phone for eight and a half minutes. Oh. She was crying and screaming.
3: Calling who? But no, she was on with the nine one one on her right, sir, wouldn't
4: let me go trying
3: to s- pass to me the. Did not, were you able to explain to nine one one what you what what the problem was or were you Well,
4: yeah, we I just knew that, she, from when she collapsed, I was with her in the bathroom and I was sitting across from her with her little puppy Clara, and she, said, "Mommy, please hug me." And I went to get up, and she just collapsed, like right there. And, um, and that's what I screamed for Simon.
3: And did you do out of the CPR? Oh, I, I, I did not stop CPR from the
5: minute my wife collapsed until the minute the paramedic walked. Did they into get there quickly? No. I defined quickly. They were there in nine minutes.
3: <sighs>
5: Where is it, Beverly
3: Hills? Uh, West. Uh, the the Hills. Beverly Hills is three minutes. I, think. I know. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Nine, if we had a better zip code, she'd Beverly be alive. Nine minutes is a little long.
5: Maybe. Nine minutes is long. What did they do? They put a breathing tube in, ushered Sharon and I out of the way.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: I drove us, they said, we're taking you to Cedar Sinai. I got in the car with Sharon, I mean, my pajamas as now is now legendary. And uh, we drove down, they knew exactly who we were when we got there. We were shown into a Charles waiting room with little. Chairs and green wallpaper and a young doctor Gave us updates and at one stage. He took me aside and said um, If I revive her now, you know she'll have brain damage. Do you want me to stop? And I said no, I don't I, The power of medicine is so strong now you wanted them to keep going If they was alive, we'd find mm-hmm. a way to you know to keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. The find at 10.04, they came in and said she didn't make it. 10.04 AM? 10.04 AM. Were you there when they said she didn't make it? Uh, three people came in, Sharon and I were holding each yeah. other. <laughs> and they let us know at the same time that, they, that she hadn't made it.
4: But we knew before that it was just, you know, you saw the life go out of her.
3: It's a 32-year-old, previously healthy woman.
5: Previously healthy with the exception of mitral valve prolapse. We had a worked-up last year. What is that? That is a heart murmur. and Well, that must have led you to think there was a heart problem. I knew this was dysrhythmia, of course, yes. so I knew she went, she got a cold, she couldn't take anything that would excite the heart. Right. I mean, we knew all the rules, we'd taken her to the best cardiologists, we'd had workups done, and they just said, it's just a heart murmur,
4: that's it. And really. that 30 or 40% uh, yeah. of women have it, it's natural, it's nothing, you just take antibiotics before you go to, the, to get your teeth cleaned, and, and, you know, nothing showed
3: up. Were you concerned about her weight? No, she she had had, had she lost a lot of weight? No, she weighed 115 pounds. 115 oh. for how tall? Uh, five, three and a half. That's right. She yeah. claimed a half. Didn't that she? would be important. <laughs> yeah.
4: uh, Good any,
3: any eating problems? Any dislike? No? Uh, the, eating problems... I uh, mean, uh, any problems other than the heart rhythm yes. you knew about? Yes, she had a big eating problem. Which was? She had refined taste.
5: That was the big eating problem. It had to be this Thai restaurant, this Chinese restaurant, the Four Seasons, the Bel-Air, the Chateau Mont, or the Beverly Hills Hotel. And if you define that as an eating problem, then yes, my wife had an eating
3: problem. A lucrative eating problem. Exactly. We'll be right back. We're back with uh, Simon Monjack and Sharon Murphy. Uh, You didn't want an autopsy at first? No, I didn't. Are you a a religious Orthodox Jew? I was. was Orthodox Jews don't want autopsies, right? It wasn't that.
5: I mean, I I could blame the religion, it would be the easiest thing to do. There was this woman who had just lost her daughter who, who to us, it was such a shock. This pristine body that was curvy in all the right places and the skin like silk. And how could I say in front of her mother, cut her up?
4: I mean, it was just And What kind of insanity
5: is that? So what did they do? They cut her up anyway. But that's fine, because that's the law. A 32-year-old dies without any illness. You, you,
3: And we want to know. We've spent many... So you're conflicted. You don't want to cut up, but you want to know. You want some finality, right?
4: Well, yeah, but at that point moment, At a moment our mean,
3: wife and daughter just died kidding, and they you, said we we're going to do an autopsy you
4: know okay we're not androids no, do you want an autopsy we like
5: when it, yeah. it, the press seems to think we should be androids the press seems to think that we shouldn't feel the press doesn't understand loss they don't know what it is to have one day the liveliest most beautiful girl where I'd sit and play Chopin and she'd fall asleep under the piano and Sharon will come and sit there it and these does. two women will be listening to Chopin's preludes it's and then you come home to darkness. Were there, were there paparazzi at the hospital? No, there was paparazzi outside our house. When you somehow, got back home? Somehow
3: the world knew before we did. So you were getting calls, and there were paparazzi at the house when you got back home, leaving I mean, the body at the hospital. Correct. Yeah. Was she buried? Yes. Where? At Forest Lawn. Did you have a ceremony? A large ceremony? We had very, very few.
4: small, very very small. It was actually we were the, we couldn't function at all, Simon and myself, and um, my sister um, and. Britney's aunt and cousin came in, her cousin was eighteen. And her best her friend and Haley. her best friend Haley went to, did all the preparations and came back and it was us. funny,
5: Brittany was, was never an early person. And we scheduled the funeral for a certain time so it would be over and people wouldn't be walking around in the dark. But it was <laughs> there was a beauty to it. As I said, Kaddish. The lights of Burbank started just to twinkle. Ever so slightly,
3: and day turned to night. How many people came? It was up on the 30. 30. Yeah, it was very small. We'll be back with more of this special edition of Larry King Live. Don't go away. Okay. Authorities have said that multiple prescription medications were collected from the home. TMZ reported medications found included anti-seizure migraine medication Topamax, anti-anxiety meds Clonopin, and Altavan pain relievers, vicoprofen and hydrocodone, depression medication, floxetine, and the hypermedication propanol. Yes. Why? Well, number one, I suffer from seizures and
5: migraines. So, they weren't in her name. Oh, they were for you? They Mm -hmm. were for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two... Well, then your name would have been on the bottle, so that's bad reporting. That is bad reporting. Number two, Brittany had suffered a seizure in Detroit. She was allergic to... Uh, artificial smoke so she took Klonopin. Um how did the the TMZ get the bottles I don't know but what we are exploring a lawsuit against the coroner there's no way that TMZ should know what
3: was being into from your house us. did they they didn't no, open up the medicine cabinet not. TMZ yeah if they did uh, then they were dressed no as the no. Meta- did any authorities open up the medicine cabinet? yes they I, did.
5: Uh, we opened our house to the authorities the authorities came to me and they said do you have secrets I said no you, the the bedroom and Sharon came to me and
3: said they didn't have a search warrant I yeah. said what do we
4: have to hide? He said the living room and we
3: were just so distraught. Well, do, do you fear that toxicology might say an overdose of prescription medication? No. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? No. That neither of you know she took too many of one substance one night. Yeah, Britney was a monkey. Possible? Listen to
5: me, Britney was a monkey. Meaning? Meaning that if she wasn't clinging to me, she was clinging to her mum, or the dog. Just loved. She was just had to be loved. And I don't mean that in a, in a codependent or whatever no, they make just, of it way or a weak way. She's one of the strongest, most beautiful women I've ever met. But she was a little monkey. She just... didn't have secrets. There's no locks on any of our cabinets. There's no locks on the doors. It would be
3: impossible. Now, is it true she was dogged for, dog for years by drug abuse rumors? What happened was, oh, there, was a, there was a blind item issued by one of
5: these idiots um, saying that uh, the day after she fired fired a powerful manager saying that one Hollywood starlet had gone to a bar mitzvah and had performed fellatio on a waiter at the bar mitzvah
3: and the New York Post the next day ran that it was Brittany Murphy. Performing fellatio on a waiter at a bar mitzvah. Yes
0: oh
3: my gosh. Was she married to you at the time? Oh, no, it's just a, it was a couple of years before But she rang me and said what do I do? I
5: mean they she identified was, her by was, name they identified her by name and Marty Singer got involved the powerful litigator And they retracted it on page 32. Singer represented her. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, so It, it, it was uh, a very very and difficult. It was
4: just vicious. How difficult. did she handle When that, that was um, when the dismissal of a representation immediately like she the next their morning,
3: that agent
4: um, there was just
3: Do you, you think know. he or he spread those rumors to I'm you? not gonna say that I'm gonna say the Hollywood
5: has a rumor machine uh, you know well, how did she to. react to all of this okay like can, she sees a story that, that, the I, can, that yeah. I can tell you that she would cry so Heart broke. She, you want to know what she broke, broke Britney Murphy's heart? Hollywood I'm broke Britney Murphy's you. heart. <laughs> I'll give you one example. <laughs> Britney made, I don't know, three hundred and fifty million dollars for Happy Feet. You know the animated cartoon, mm-hmm. show sure your children. You made that much money? Well, no, for the studio, not for no, her. Uh, I mean, her. I think she made three dollars twenty. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do I know? Good movie. Yeah, great movie. The sequels about to be made. They make an offer, and then a Perez, someone or other, he has a blog, I don't know his name, um, runs that she was fired from a fun movie in Puerto Rico. I was inebriated in fighting Puerto Ricans. The, 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 so they pull the offer. And after she'd been Gloria for from the second movie from the second movie the office of that item because of some stupid item and her bathroom breaks for a bit long her what bathroom breaks for a bit long this is warner brothers this is the ludicrousness of what i'm saying to you that they but uh, but how does she
3: deal with all this she cried and cried cried. and cried and
4: called
3: she was a sensitive little she was a flower did she have a good press agent There's some great press agents. I don't know
4: anything about the industry. Um, it was you know, pretty much my Brittany and I listened to what we were advised. And, was she diabetic? Um, Hypoglycemic. Yeah. Hypoglycemic. She had to eat a lot.
3: More about this tragedy after this. We're back with Simon Monjak and Sharon Murphy. How would you describe her emotional state? leading up the days before she died
5: what kind of she was going into her time of the month so mm-hmm. i would describe it as erratic uh, Brittany had very difficult uh time every month and everyone used to duck and run and find a safe corner
4: She had horrific
5: cramps <laughs> i
4: mean she was really i had the same thing
5: but but underneath all that was just a happy girl looking forward to moving to new york and having a baby mm-hmm. she'd found love you In know you. Yes, and and, and her mother will attest to that. It was the happiest time of her life. You know, when when she died, I spoke to her ex boyfriends because she asked me to. She said, If anything ever happens to me, you
3: do this, this, this.
5: And I did, I made the calls. I
4: not believe that
3: he did. What did her ex boyfriend say? Well, we know what. Everyone everyone said the same thing.
5: They bought light. She bought light. She bought light. She was an angel. She was an earth Uh, What about her girlfriends? she was very um i don't want to say hermitic because that's the wrong word she didn't hang around with the hollywood set no
4: never no
5: but my, my favorite never. thing was was one of the magazines nominated britney the number one party girl of
3: 2006 <laughs> Well, she hadn't been out,
4: out that year <laughs> never went out like i'd have to you know so she wasn't in that in the
3: paris hilton lindsay
5: lohan the group no there's a wonderful comment by jamie presley and they said were you close to britney murphy and jamie presley turns around and says i was before she married him and i sent to sharon i said did you know jamie presley
1: I, I, no
3: <laughs> <laughs> I. I so the broken engagements were not bad breakups, is that what you're saying? Oh,
4: no, they were very short uh, relationships, like six weeks, maybe two months, and it was pretty much, well, I mean, she was never in love, um, you know, she, whoever sought her out, she kind of ended up with it, it was yeah. the kind of type of person, except for when Simon came She liked being her. chased? No, she didn't even think about it, because it wasn't part of her life. Like, she didn't she didn't date, you know, she didn't, it was...
3: mean she had a relationship, stayed in it, then yes. it broke up, and then she didn't yes. go see 10 that, different guys in 10 different days.
4: Never, and it was her that ended the relationship. And
3: that flight back so from, from Puerto Rico, like, you got sick, right? I had a heart attack. What? I had a heart attack, yeah. How are you now? He's Um.
4: not doing too
5: well. I don't know if I'm heartbroken or heartbroken.
3: You had a heart attack on the plane? Yes, my heart stopped. There's a 911 call that says his heart is stopped. We don't know if we can revive him. How about the speculation? I I didn't hear this one. That one of the reasons for your marriage was to avoid getting deported because you had an expired visa. Um, no. My marriage was for love. Had
5: you heard that one? I I, I heard I was kidnapped. I heard um, Brittany paid the ransom. I heard I was uh, going to be deported. I heard that I owed uh, millions and billions of dollars. I have a green card. Surely people realize that, you know, I love that um, I'm quite happy that the federal government are quite happy with me, but Us Weekly finds a problem. Uh, the, the,
3: co- <laughs> the con man that supports his, his, his wife, with it's, more of a, it's ludicrous. a strange story, don't go away. We're back. A couple of segments left with Simon Monjack and Sharon Murphy. We certainly thank you. We know this could not be easy. Oh, How about stories that you are a Svengali, a controlling factor? A Svengali?
5: Yeah. I should be so lucky. <laughs> so you're telling me a woman that made... I mean, so... I'm just telling you no, stories that were I, printed. Uh, Larry, you've got a girl that's made that. 32 movies. You
4: showed up again with that.
5: Quite happily, before I came along.
3: Esfingali, uh, was she the breadwinner in the marriage? No, of course not. Oh, no. So you earned your own living, he, Sharon. Please.
4: He wouldn't let her pay us pay a dime for anything.
3: Another for report, anything. again. These are all tabloid, but Everything. I'm just telling you what yeah. when, that you 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 were the beneficiary of the entire estate. Correct. As yes.
5: Sharon. There was a will drawn two days after Brittany's and uh, my nuptials, marriage. I insisted that everything be le- left yeah. to, to Sharon, and I signed away all rights as an spouse of law in California.
3: Well, now there another report was that she was penniless. If she was penniless, how was there an estate? How she, she was penniless? There was one report that she had no money. Really? Yeah. Good job of us around then. I'm glad I did a good thing. Did you get a? Did, was it a sizable estate?
4: I we haven't no even begun idea. to add it up. I really don't.
3: Uh, oh, you know haven't I, seen me. We're anything.
4: not even there yet,
3: uh, Larry. We
5: have clung to each other. That's been weeks. We cry day after day after day. I lay and I look at the ceiling. My mother-in-law comes in with neuropathy, shaking, needing to be held. You think we're doing
3: math? I, I, honestly, I mean, come on. I'm just dealing with what's reported. It's He's, not my cup of tea. I'm he, just asking. Was, I'm,
5: and I'm just telling you, we're not doing math. We're eating, we're living, I'm paying the bills. We haven't even looked at Britney's estate yet. No. And when we do, we will. But until then, my mother in law is my priority. You know, I lost a wife, there's no
3: mitzvah. Oh, no. How's I'm your help? It's he
4: important.
3: How's your help? You um, had cancer? You've got times. a heart attack. Yeah, we're we're a good couple. <laughs> we're,
5: gonna take, we're gonna take it on the road together.
4: We make she a whole person. She has toxic neuropathy,
5: which needs curing. Uh, that is where the chemotherapy is mixed with another drug to, to damage the nervous system. She is not good. She
3: is not well. And are you being treated for your heart? I'm being treated for several things. Uh, when we come back, we'll find out what now. The, the Munchak and Murphy. They're ever, forever entwined. Don't go away. Where do you two go from here? Well, we stay together for now. Because I spoke go to have. England or stay here? I, I would never leave my mother and are you crazy? I You're going to stay here, Sean?
4: We could never. In Los Angeles?
3: Or go to New Jersey?
4: No, we never.
3: Uh, Britain never job. wanted
4: to stay here except for work, so.
3: You go back east?
4: Um,
3: well, I'm we have a, <laughs> we have, we need we have a job
5: other. to do. It's called the Brittany Murphy Foundation for young people, for education, for things like what's going on in Haiti, so that we will be able to keep Brittany's memory when all the tabloids have gone the out of business. It yeah. is being formed. Let us know all about it. Let us yeah. know how people can get in touch. They with can. It. They, they absolutely will. There's an email which is donate at uh, bam b a m Bam Dot com.
3: What's your favorite memory of your daughter, Sharon? When you think of her, what do you think of?
4: Uh, everything. I mean, because she was so just a loving, beautiful angel that just was had the biggest heart in the world and was so giving and kind and precious we were one we were inseparable we grew up together i mean and would take the time for every single person she passed that needed her homeless people little children she's just she was just
3: how's the dog doing
4: magnificent oh, terrible yeah crying every day crying
3: crying i'm kind of wife was Oh. Not a typical one.
5: If you asked her for a meal, then she would give you uh, something to order from. If you asked her for a shirt, she'd say blue would be nice. <laughs> um, I did a hair and makeup on four movies. I dressed her, and I suppose that's where the Svengali thing comes from. It was our magic it. time. Yeah, it was our magic time
3: in the trailer.
4: She never liked being alone from her loved ones.
3: I, hope you? You, I hope you get it all finalized. I hope you hear from the coroner soon. Hope you put this away and I wish you happy lives.
0: Thank you, sir. So uh, thank much. you for coming.
5: Thank you, thank Larry. You, Larry. Appreciate it.
0: Okay, so if you listened to that, then you heard the most inappropriate things that Simon could have possibly said. Not just inappropriate in general to be speaking of his dead wife like this, but also doing it in front of her mother. I found the interview to be kind of annoying because Simon and Sharon were constantly talking over each other, but Okay, so it went like this. Larry King asked, you didn't want an autopsy at first? Simon answered, no, I didn't. Are you a religious Orthodox Jew? You don't want autopsies, right? Simon replied, it wasn't that. I mean, I could have blamed the religion. That was the easiest thing to do. There was this woman and he motioned to Sharon who just lost her daughter, who to us, it was such a shock. This pristine body that was all curvy in the right places. And then Sharon said, it wasn't like she was in a car accident. And Simon continued, the skin like silk. How could I say in front of her mother cut her up? I mean, what kind of insanity is that? Sharon said, unfathomable. And Simon said, they cut her up anyway, but that's fine. Larry said, because Simon said, because that's the law. A 32-year-old dies without any illness? We want to know. Larry said, so you're conflicted. You don't want her cut up, and you want to know. You want some finality, right? Sharon said, well, yes, but at the moment, and then Simon interrupted and said, at the moment, a wife and daughter just died, and they say they're going to do an autopsy. We are not androids, and the press seems to think that we should be androids. The press seems to think that we shouldn't feel. The press doesn't understand loss. They don't know what it is to have one day the liveliest, most beautiful girl who would sit and play Chopin and then she fall asleep under the piano and Sharon will come there and sit and these two women will be listening to Chopin's preludes and then come home to darkness. So clearly, Simon has a very ornate and grandiloquent way with words as if he time traveled from an England of some centuries ago. I find it to be kind of awkward, but he was an awkward guy. What he had to say about silky skin and curvy curves. I wish he would have just blamed the religion personally. I think Simon kind of hit the jackpot when he married Brittany and as weird and bizarre as he sounds speaking about her looking back on it now i don't think simon would have any reason to want to see any harm done to her but at the time back then following her death it was very easy to see why this guy really weirded people out what i do find more troubling than that is the fact that sharon was in agreement with simon in not wanting an autopsy. If my 32-year-old daughter suddenly dropped dead, you best believe that I want the medical examiner looking at every single thing humanly possible so I know what killed her. I'll never understand why Sharon Murphy didn't want to know, but I can see why Simon announcing that he didn't want an autopsy being somewhat problematic, especially when it comes to the way that The public perceives him. So, Assistant Chief Ed Winter also watched the interview with Larry King. And to him, not only did Sharon appear to be really, really out of it, he felt like the whole thing was a put on. Now, I'm not really one to put all that much stock into an opinion like that. I think Sharon had every right to be out of it. Brittany was her only daughter. This interview was less than a month since she had died. I give Sharon tons of credit for even being able to get out of bed and do it in the first place. But what I do think is that Simon is the one that she was propped up against through all of this. I think the woman had nobody else to turn to. And I think she latched on to Simon fiercely. And I think he still very much wanted to be in control of everything that was happening in the wake of Brittany's death. I think both Sharon and Simon's identities, were completely enveloped by Brittany. I have one daughter. I can see myself attached to her forever. If she died, I think I'd just about throw myself into the ground with her. If I'm being honest, I feel every part of what's going on here with Sharon, very strongly being alone in this world with the exception of one child. If she ever got married, I'd probably grow strongly attached to the both of them. And then what if she was suddenly gone? And the both of us are now looking at the world around us and there's just nothingness in every direction. Can any of us honestly say what we would do or how we would feel or how we would move forward if we went through something like this? And Would we do it together or apart? It's really hard to say because we don't know what it's like to be them. And to lose the one thing in the world that gave them both purpose? What do you do with that? But, at the time, the optics of it simply did not sit well with the public and with the media. And I get it. I believe once Brittany died sharon held on tight to simon because there was nobody else in the world who was that close to and in love with her child like he was roger neal finally met sharon and simon he had already seen that larry king interview and his impression was that sharon capitulated and deferred to simon and that was how it was when he spoke to them face to face Simon was most definitely running the show here, but he was a businessman. He had dabbled in so many things and they were going to have to deal with Britney's death publicly whether they wanted to or not. So what would be the right thing to do? Just hold themselves up in that mansion and let the press run rampant with Brittany's story? Or could they try and take it by the reins so that they would be able to control the narrative? Obviously, Simon Monjack did not have the tact or the know-how to pull it off himself. Sharon seemed a bit of a mess also. I think together they were trying to tell their story and Brittany's story, but they weren't going about it the right way. Because, you know, dreamers, their lives do have to go on. I just don't think that they were prepared for this. I don't think Simon had any idea how to handle the public and the media. And everything was just coming across so badly, which is why they decided to hire a publicist. It makes sense. If it wasn't going to be Sharon and Simon carrying on for Brittany, there'd be nobody. What else were they supposed to do, you know? And to be honest with you dreamers, another thing that I found pretty cringy about this whole story, particularly in the HBO documentary, was the interviews with the members of the media who were able to share their opinions about Simon and Brittany. It really kind of felt like nobody considered that Sharon had just lost her daughter and that Simon had just lost his wife because everybody was so wrapped up in these rumors that Simon killed Brittany and was having an affair with her mother. Again, I know the optics aren't great, but nobody ever extended their sympathies or any sentiments of that sort when these two people experienced such a profound loss, even after knowing that Brittany died of pneumonia, anemia, and prescription drug intoxication, and her death was ruled accidental, people were still coming after Simon. This reporter from Radar Online had first made contact with Simon, I believe, the day that Brittany was buried, which was on December 24, 2009, just four days after she died. That reporter was Amber Ryland, and she was working for Radar Online at the time. She was told by her bosses, go get a box of flowers and go outside the mansion and just kind of try to wait there, bring some flowers to Simon and try to make contact with him. So she did that. She left flowers and a card. She called Simon from the call box outside the gates and gave her condolences or whatever. And later on, he ended up calling her. And then about close to six weeks later, Amber met Simon for dinner. Before she met him, she went and told a whole bunch of her friends and colleagues that she was going to have dinner with him. And they all told her all this really like bad stuff about him, shady stuff or unsavory things as she put it. This bothered me because Simon, wasn't really speaking one-on-one to very many journalists. She got to him by giving him a bouquet of flowers to disingenuously extend her condolences. And then she went around telling her friends and colleagues about the dinner plans. And then they went and filled her head with all of this quote-unquote unsavory stuff about him. I just kind of think, as a journalist, it may have been better for her to have just gone into the dinner meeting without all of these preconceived notions and then just come away from the meeting with being able to form her own opinions about him and then put that into her story. She even said in her interview that it was her job to befriend Simon. But there is just something about the way she went about it that did not sit well with me. Being the only reporter that Simon ever really sat down with in an intimate setting like that, I think he deserved to be treated fairly, at least, at the very least, for even giving her this opportunity, because he didn't have to do that. Amber described Simon as sweaty and nervous, and she felt really awkward around him about the way he talked about Brittany. She said that he liked taking credit for her successes and her career. That. He was the one who made hair and makeup and wardrobe choices for her, and that he had input on the sets that she worked on. She said that Simon made himself the boss of Sharon and Brittany's little family because before he came along, it had always and only had ever been the two of them. He came along, and then in a matter of three years, he was apparently controlling everything and running the show. Simon expressed to Amber that he knew how the public perception of him was and that it was that he wielded all of this power and control over Brittany. But he told her that the fact was that she was his soulmate and he was hers, that they had this love story that everybody chose to ignore. So after the dinner, several of Amber's friends called her up right away and were like, OMG, you actually went to dinner with that guy. What did you think? Did he have something to do with Brittany's death? And yet, she sat there throughout the whole dinner wondering and contemplating. Was she seated across from a murderer? Granted, this dinner meeting was several weeks prior to the release of the autopsy report that had the rulings on Brittany's manner and cause of death. But still, did anyone really, really think that Simon murdered Brittany? I think the media liked the way that that headline looked and sounded for the clicks. But when it really comes down to it, the only people's opinions that mattered whether or not Simon murdered Brittany were the police, and they never thought it. So yeah, that's how this reporter befriended Simon. So then later on in a follow-up, Simon invited Amber over To see the house that he shared with Brittany. Yeah. So the reporter who thought that she might be having dinner with a murderer. Jumped at the chance to go inside his home. Then she noted how many security measures that had been taken at the home. Needing a thumbprint to unlock the door. And surveillance cameras everywhere. And she was apparently dumbfounded as to why there was so much security there. She even said like why? Whoa. What's the deal with all of this? What are you so afraid of? Um, hello, this was 2009 going into 2010. Brittany had lived there previously with her mom on their own. And Brittany was beautiful, rich, and single. I would question it if there wasn't additional security. She's really famous. We would think she was crazy if she didn't have cameras and a gated property. So I really don't understand why this reporter was so shocked about the security measures taken at the house when she was given the chance to come and see it then she said that simon talked about being targeted or there was some sort of conspiracy out there about people being after them i mean for goodness sakes i live alone and there were just two occasions last week when the dogs suddenly and randomly started barking at the front door in the middle of the night so I grabbed a kitchen knife and my pepper spray and I tried peeking out the window. And you know when I do this and I'm very quiet, oddly the dogs suddenly become very quiet too. Then when I start to put my hand on the door or on the light switch, they start growling like we are all gearing up to start to attack somebody right now. The first night, it was people in the swimming pool in the middle of the night. And the second night, it was the wind causing the doors and windows in the living room to rattle. And remember, all of this I'm talking about with Simon, all of this is in hindsight. This is the reporter reflecting on this in a documentary that was filmed and released in 2021. And we know the man had a pill problem. And it's probably going to have him feeling on edge all the time. In the video of him showing her around the house... It really looks like he's a man who is wanting to hold on to Brittany in any which way that he can, even if it means continuing to live in the place where he was last ever with her. And it's kind of sad to watch. So I think that there is no reason to be questioning, especially today in 2021, knowing everything that we know now, why does Simon have all of these security cameras? Why has he taken all of these extraordinary measures to keep the house safe, and why do they seem all weirded out and paranoid? I mean, that's kind of like how everybody is these days, don't you think? Amber also commented that the house wasn't what you would expect it to be, what you would expect the quote-unquote Hollywood Hills home of a famous actress to look like, because it was pretty cluttered. The bathroom where Brittany died, the counter was full of bottles and jars and things, cosmetics of all sorts, and just bathroom stuff, but it was everywhere. She had tons of clothes. There was things all over the place. It was very disorganized. Clearly, Brittany had tons of money to spend on just stuff, but it wasn't organized. It was a mess. Again, in hindsight, we know that the three people who lived there rarely left, and they were likely all using a lot of prescription drugs. It does look like the home of somebody who was struggling, very much so. And in 2021, we know this now. We shouldn't even be questioning, well, why was Brittany's house such a mess? Because we know we have the answers. You don't need to get up in a documentary and talk about what a mess Brittany Murphy's life was. We get it. Sharon was there at the time that Amber was visiting, and Amber said it was so clear that Simon was in charge of everything, and she noticed that in the master bedroom, both sides of the bed had been slept in. So she asked Simon about it, and he told her that sometimes Sharon lays down in bed with him and they just cry. On this point, I will agree it's kind of strange. There's not really any getting around that. But I mean, what if Simon and Sharon did have a relationship after Brittany's death? Well, then, would that make them being in the same bed any less weird? Probably not. Nobody has ever said that the two of them ever had a sexual relationship. Not that it's any of our business. But who knows? When you bring everything together in their situation, the isolation, the grief, the sadness, the drugs, while it may have been really bizarre to go in that direction with one another, do we really get it? Can we really understand what was going on with these people and why they did what they did? In their defense, I mean, they're alone in that house. But Brittany died just about right there. The two of them are probably taking a lot of pills to numb themselves, to get rid of the pain and the sadness. And you just have to lay down and you barely have it in you to even breathe much less want to drag yourself out of the bed. I can see just collapsing right there in the bedroom and drifting in and out of sleep. That is a tough one to look past, though. But it still doesn't make Simon Monjack a killer. And according to their publicist, Roger Neal, there was never anything between Sharon and Simon beyond a mother-in-law, son-in-law relationship And he called it absurd for anyone to say any different. He said that Sharon was a woman who was absolutely terrified, distraught, heartbroken, and grief stricken. And she was never really even allowed the chance to truly grieve because of the media. According to Roger, there was no way that Sharon was finding comfort in an inappropriate relationship with Simon. So there you have it from a gentleman who actually knows them. In the interview with Larry King, he asked Sharon and Simon if they were concerned that the toxicology report on Brittany would come back to reveal that she had prescription medications in her system and if it was possible if she overdosed. They both said in unison no. Well, it turned out that the day of Brittany's death, investigators who were at the home looked for prescription medications, and what they found was pretty shocking. On Simon's side of the bed in his nightstand, he had 90 prescription bottles that were under a variety of names. Brittany had a number of prescription bottles in her name on her side of the bed, but also under an alias that she seemed to have used in order to obtain more prescriptions from different doctors or to try and hide her identity. And among the drugs were many strong drugs that are usually prescribed for things like depression, anxiety, and various types of painkillers. And many of them are considered to be habit forming. The pharmacies from where those prescriptions came from were served with search warrants. And it was discovered that both Simon and Brittany were getting numerous prescriptions from a variety of doctors. And it did reach a point where they needed to start using different names so that they wouldn't raise any red flags. So across the media, the rumor started to spread that Simon was using prescription pills to control Brittany and her mother. That Simon was the one with the serious pill problem and that he had gotten the both of them hooked on him based on the number of pill bottles found on simon's side of the bed it would seem like he did have the bigger problem but again that's only speculation and an assumption but it seems to be pretty accurate besides Brittany and her mother are still their own people who have the ability to exercise free will and choose what they want to do and what they don't want to do perhaps simon was a bad influence on the both of them Maybe he did introduce doctor shopping to them, and maybe if it wasn't for him, Brittany and Sharon wouldn't have ever had a pill problem, if they even had one at all. We just don't know how all that played out, and it also doesn't mean that Simon killed her. When the news got out about the stockpile of prescription bottles, Rumors about Britney began making the rounds in the media in terms of how things had been going for her in her acting career. People would describe that there were times when she would arrive at work and she looked like she was under the influence, that she began to often have trouble with memorizing her scripts. And these were things that had never been a problem with Britney in the past, much of which attributed to her tremendous success, that she had always been such a dedicated and reliable actor. Yet in recent projects, some people apparently saw red flags. Someone according to the investigation discovery documentary on this case said that they knew for a fact that while Brittany did not ever use illicit drugs while at work, when they finished for the day on a job, she and Simon Monjak would go home and smoke crack. There's nothing out there to corroborate that claim. And as stated, There were no illegal drugs found in her system at all. I've lived with a crack addict for many years, and I can only base my opinions on my own experiences, but Brittany did not strike me as a crackhead, and neither did Simon Monjack. For the almost three years that they were married, they did show up to events, and they did red carpet things. I don't really think that they would have been able to keep that up if they were both using crack. Whitney Houston was famously rumored to have been smoking crack, which she vehemently denied in 2002 in an interview that she did with Diane Sawyer. I don't know if it was ever proven that those rumors were true, but Whitney denied it, while in the next breath, she admitted to what she was doing. When Diane asked her about a headline that said, "'Whitney Dying Crack Rehab Fails' Whitney immediately shot back. First of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make way too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. We don't do that. Crack is whack. Diane said, was it alcohol? Was it marijuana? Was it cocaine? Was it pills? And Whitney paused for a moment and said, at times. Diane said, all of them? And Whitney said, at times. And that, in part, kind of goes to my point. Brittany can afford to not have to resort to smoking crack. Bottom line, though, her toxicology report reflected nothing illicit. And, spoiler alert, neither did Simon's. When Brittany died, Sharon was the sole beneficiary of her estate. So Simon, who really at the time had no job or source of income, was most likely hanging on to Sharon for financial support, and she was clearly clinging on to him for support in life in general. They desperately needed each other for different reasons. When Simon married Brittany, he didn't have to work. And you know what? Good for him, because it happens the other way around all the time. Not just with celebrities, but with wealthy men in general, who marry women whose job it is, is to become their spouse. And nobody thinks anything of it. But for whatever reason, everybody is poo-pooing on Simon Monjack for marrying Brittany Murphy and doing nothing but becoming Mr. Brittany Murphy. It's really an unfair double standard. And then everybody started speculating that Simon is just taking control over Brittany. Well, did anyone ever stop and think that maybe there were a lot of things that Brittany and her mom had been totally responsible for their whole entire lives. And then Simon Monjack came along and they were like, okay, we'll surrender X, Y, and Z to him. And we can just breathe and do our thing. There's somebody there now to take out the trash and to walk the dog and to get the car serviced or washed or gassed. Well, that sounds like a list of chores that I wouldn't miss doing if someone would take a load off for me once in a while, right? Someone around to just go and do that errand or pick up the groceries or fix that broken thing, you know? Simon Monjack didn't hypnotize Brittany or cast a spell on her or put her into a trance in order to be with him. She was with him and she married him because that's what she wanted and she loved him. So yeah... He was kind of right when he said that there was a love story there that people don't seem to want to acknowledge. So now Brittany's gone. She passes away, right? And the question gets asked, who had the most to gain? It wasn't Simon. In fact, he had the most to lose in the event of her death. Maybe he went and cast his magic spells on Sharon and put her in a trance, so he would be able to continue to pillage and plunder all of Brittany's riches after her death. Is that what people want to say now? But the fact is, Sharon is the one that got everything and Simon had to do something for work. So he announced on Larry King that he was going to start the Brittany Murphy Foundation. The plan was to hold a memorial and to charge people to attend it, and it would all go towards this foundation that was dedicated to the arts education for children. And everybody turned their noses up at it. They called it a tasteless cash grab. Even that former journalist from People magazine that I mentioned earlier, Sarah Hamill, she said in the HBO documentary that Simon was going to charge people to come to this memorial that he was having and it was tacky and money grubbing. She said, quote, the world could see that this man was now trying to profit off of his wife's death in a really bizarre way. This coming from a former People magazine reporter, a magazine that lives and breathes off of celebrity lives and their deaths. The irony in passing that kind of judgment onto Simon is not lost on me. These magazines, including that reporter from Radar Online, who went to dinner with Simon and took cameras into his home, and panned across the bathroom where Brittany collapsed, they can go ahead and make all the money that they want exploiting Simon, Brittany, and Sharon every which way that they see fit, so long as it's on their terms. But when Simon makes his very first move at earning a living, they're the first ones to jump all over him and accuse him of exploiting Brittany how much money have all of these journalists and magazines and online gossip sites have made over the years off of Brittany murphy and how much of it did they ever give to Brittany, or to her mother or to simon yet the media backlashed on him so hard for the foundation that within a day or two the whole thing vanished the media these journalists sitting here some 13 years after the fact that can actually have the nerve to get on camera and continue to trash the guy for trying to pick up the pieces of his life in the wake of Britney's death while still continuing to profit off of this story is just a tiny example of the hypocrisy here at play. They have People Magazine or Radar Online backing them up so it's okay for them to exploit Brittany Murphy and to exploit Simon Monjack and Sharon for that matter as well. But Simon starts a foundation and he's the sleazeball. The guy was never going to win over the media. Every time he tried, it backfired. And all the media did was take everything that he was willing to share with them and use it against him to ensure that he never would be able to. And then, wow, in the documentary, there was a clip from one of those makeup artists slash vloggers who said that Simon Monjack was a scammer and anybody who goes from being with Ashton Kutcher to Simon Monjack, that you're going to have questions. As you may know, Brittany and Ashton dated in 2003 after they met on the set of their movie Just Married, but they were only together for five months. So I would hardly call it an earth-moving, life-altering romance for the ages. And frankly, it doesn't matter how cute or adorable or funny or witty or charming that Ashton Kutcher is or was. It doesn't mean that he's good relationship material. Just ask Demi more. So when that vlogger said that going from Ashton to Simon and she's got questions, all I have to say is if you ask me, Brittany dodged a bullet when she and Ashton called it quits. Prior to Ashton, Britney dated Eminem after they filmed 8 Mile together. Then she dated Ashton. From there, she dated a couple of behind-the-scenes guys, but there was never anything really that lasted long. Each of them tended to burn out very fast. And from those close to Britney. They would say that she was anxious to settle down and get married. So she was definitely barking up the wrong tree if she was looking for that in either Eminem or Ashton back in the early 2000s. When she met Simon in 2006, they were both single. And they were both in the same place when it came to what they were looking for in a relationship. They both wanted to get married and it's been said that that all it took for Brittany to decide that simon was the one for her it was just a matter of being in the right place at the right time for both of them Brittany had read a script that simon had written and she liked it so much that she wanted to meet with him and discuss possibly working on a project together they had known each other sort of in passing previously but it wasn't until 2006 when they had a meeting and they really sat down to talk that things started to get a little bit more serious. And for all the things that have been said about Simon at this meeting, Brittany was really taken by him. He was older and he was British and he was very much a gentleman and well-spoken with that accent. And He was big and tall and he just had this presence about him that Brittany liked right away. And Simon, of course, was very smitten with Brittany In fact, that very same day, he called his mom back up in England, and he told her that he was in love. They began dating, and by the next April of 2007, they were married. In fact, it happened so fast, Simon hadn't even told his family about it. For Simon, this was marriage number three, I believe. I've heard three, I've also heard two, but according to Simon's mom, it was the very first time that her son was truly in love. Right after they got married, Sharon moved into the mansion with them. Sharon had spent her entire life caring for Brittany. Brittany found tremendous success and then it was her who took care of her mother. And then they found Simon and his role was to take care of them. But then less than three years later, Brittany would be found on her bathroom floor, her life slipping away. Here is where we get into one of the more heartbreaking aspects of this whole entire story: the fact that Brittany's death was so, so very preventable. She needed to be seen by a doctor. She was severely anemic, according to the pathologist who conducted her autopsy. Her hemoglobin counts were so low that they were life-threatening levels. This is chronic. And if Brittany had been tested for this at any point in the time prior to her death, she would have been admitted to the hospital and treated for it. She should have been admitted to the hospital and treated, but she wasn't. The symptoms, the tiredness, the lightheadedness, all that stuff. Brittany seemed to be trying to just cope and deal with it herself at home. When Brittany's lungs were tested for pneumonia autopsy, it was found that she had a very severe case. Her lungs were filled with fluid, and this was definitely something that she needed to go to the ER for right away as soon as those symptoms presented themselves. Even going back a couple of weeks to their vacation in Puerto Rico, she had become sick, and she basically stayed sick up until her body finally gave out and she collapsed in her bathroom. She had all of those medications in her system, including medications associated with using an inhaler which leads me to believe that she was having trouble breathing and was using an inhaler to try and treat those symptoms at home according to the pathologist this was something that Brittany had for quite some time she just didn't wake up one day with this type and level of pneumonia the onset of it all the pneumonia and the anemia it it happened over time and this was long term Brittany had been living with both of these things for a while. The anemia was a condition that would have been fatal in and of itself. The pneumonia would have also been a thing fatal in and of itself. But when all of those prescriptions and over-the-counter drugs that were found in Brittany's system were introduced, that was likely what pushed her condition over the line of being fatal. But to be clear, they would have been fatal even without the drugs. It is likely that if britney had been seen by a doctor within the two weeks before she died that she would have survived these conditions however in an interview with matt lauer simon and sharon said that there was nothing going on with britney in the days and weeks leading up to her death they both said flat out no there was nothing wrong with her they said that she had done some traveling that they had all caught a little bit of a flu-like thing but both she and Simon had it worse than Brittany ever did. Then Simon said that Brittany had laryngitis and that she was perfectly healthy and well. So their denials that there was anything wrong with Brittany only fueled the speculation that Simon had something to do with Brittany's death. For whatever reason, they didn't want to own that. They didn't want to like say it out loud that Brittany had been sick, like really sick before she died. Maybe because nobody really did anything about it or did enough about it. But everyone was thinking it. Simon had to have done something to Brittany because a 32-year-old woman doesn't just drop dead of pneumonia. And they just couldn't get past this notion that Simon Monjack was this big creeper guy that had complete control over Brittany's life until he must have caused her death. The last time Simon's mother, Linda, spoke to Brittany was just before she died and Brittany told her that she wasn't feeling well Linda asked what the matter was and she said that she was having so much trouble breathing that she could barely make it up the stairs and she thought maybe she was dying Linda tried to assure her that she was going to be okay but she needed to go see a doctor the next time Linda heard anything was when Simon called her to tell her that Brittany had in fact died to be clear Simon Monjak did have a shady past, and all of that was coming out to the media after Britney's death, and it only added fuel to the fire when it came to the speculation that he was responsible for her death. Simon was known to be a liar who embellished details of his life. He had told people that he was a billionaire, heir to the British Steel Fortune, that he was a prolific art collector, that he dated Madonna and supermodel Elle McPherson that he used to have terminal brain cancer but underwent an experimental treatment that involved components harvested from shark fins and it cured his cancer, that he had 17 Ferraris. And the way Simon was apparently able to get people to believe his lies was that he always seemed to have a beautiful young woman on his arm that kind of gave him this air of legitimacy. And usually the woman had a bit of money to her name, But once she would get with Simon and the money would run dry, he would move on to the next woman. And it all worked so well because the women believed his lies too. They would eventually figure it out and then Simon would have to move on to the next. In the documentary on Investigation Discovery, Simon's first wife, Simone Bien, was brought up. She's from London, but today works as a psychosexual and relationship therapist in both London and in Los Angeles. She's attractive and successful and all that. But back in 2001, she did get married to Simon. And the truth was he won her over with those lies by telling her that he had collected valuable works of art and that he was the heir to British steel. After they got married, he moved into her home and He immediately became this big, huge, messy slob of a husband, and within five months, he was out of there. But they weren't officially divorced until 2006. But yeah, his true colors emerged as soon as Simone was locked into a marriage. When the divorce was finalized, Simon was ordered to pay Simone $63,000, which was never paid simon's biggest claim to fame was having been a writer for the 2006 film factory girl which according to its imdb is a movie based on the rise and fall of socialite edie sedgwick that and it concentrated on her relationships with andy warhol and a folk singer i looked into it further and that folk singer was bob dylan this was the wave that simon was riding on when he met Brittany. But it too was apparently shrouded in shadiness on Simon's part. So he apparently filed this lawsuit against the filmmakers of Factory Girl, claiming that it was his script, that he wrote it and it was stolen from him. So the filmmakers decided to go ahead and include Simon in the writing credits, opting to not let this go to trial. Now this is one of those things that depending on how you word it and how you tell the story, it can make Simon sound like the bad guy again, or he's the guy that was given what he deserved. Let me explain. In the Investigation Discovery documentary, a reporter named Diane Diamond, listed as Crime and justice Reporter, said the following, quote, Simon sued the production of the movie Factory Girl, claiming that they had stolen his script to make the movie. Rather than fight him in court, they just gave him a screenwriting credit to make him go away. Now that really casts Simon as the villain of the narrative here again. But how do we know that the truth isn't that Simon was a contributing writer, if not the primary writer for the script of Factory Girl? But the filmmakers took the script, created the movie, and failed to provide him with a writing credit. So Simon filed a lawsuit and the matter was settled out of court, with the filmmakers agreeing to include Simon in the credits. When you say it that way, it casts a very different light on Simon. You can be saying the exact same thing in two different ways, and have a dramatic shift in the perception of things. Did Simon contribute to the writing of the script? Well, at the end of the day, based on what the filmmakers decided to do, He apparently did. They had their chance to prove in court that he didn't. Crime and justice reporter said in her interview that Simon's writing credit was completely bogus, so maybe she knows something that the rest of us don't. The movie ended up being one of the biggest things that Simon would be able to go on to use as an extension of himself to give off that legitimacy that he always tried to portray. Simon Monjak was far from a legit businessman or a steel industry billionaire heir, but you know, in a comical kind of way, Simon's little shtick there with the writing credits for that movie kind of reminds me of Married with Children and how the highlight of Al Bundy's life was scoring four touchdowns in a single game while playing for his high school city championship in the 1966 season against their biggest rival, including his scoring the last second game-winning touchdown. Factory Girl became Simon's winning touchdown. Simon's mom, Linda, while she speaks very lovingly about her son, she is willing to admit that Simon did blur what was real and what was fantasy. She believed that he was very misunderstood, that if anything else, his greatest and worst attribute may have been his ability to tell a story. She would say that he would tell outlandish and ludicrous stories, but was using those things and the people around him to try and write his next script, which is actually pretty common for writers. They do draw from their own lives and their own experiences, whether they're true or not. Simon seemed to be the type of man who always had a lot of things going on inside of his head without a real outlet or a direction to go with it. His mom said that he mistook fantasy for real life. But is that not what Hollywood is completely and totally based on? So when Brittany Murphy came into Simon's life, it probably felt as if she had walked off the pages of one of his most fantastical scripts and right into his real world. And perhaps it was just more than Simon could handle. It was like he didn't know what to do when all of his fantasies suddenly came true. And when that happens, how does someone like Simon Monjack react? Probably the way that we saw things unfold. I don't doubt that Simon and Brittany loved one another. But instead of being built on the best of who they were as people and who they could be, Their love and their relationship was steeped in their deepest fears and weaknesses. The both of them, not just Simon and not just Brittany, it was the both of them together. Simon Monjack is often referred to as a charlatan or a Svengali. A charlatan, a person who exercises a controlling or mesmeric influence on another, especially for a sinister purpose. A spengali, a person who falsely claims to have special skills or knowledge of fraud. It said in that documentary, he was a con man, an extortionist. He cut her off from the outside world. He kept her cloistered in that home, plied her with drugs, controlled her mind. He's bad news. People actually started to suspect that he might have something to do with her death, that he wanted a get-rich-quick scheme, that he was a sociopath that he saw dollar signs with Brittany and that's all he needed. I don't know if all of that is necessarily true, but the fact is we just don't know. Like I said early on, there are tons of pictures of the two of them when you Google. They were only together for three years and there are tons of pictures of them, her looking as glamorous as ever. That isn't really cutting her off from the outside world. Some people say that Brittany was a falling star that her agent dropped her, that her management company let her go, that Hollywood stopped calling. What do celebrities do when those things happen to them? They lay low. So which is it? Was Hollywood turning on Britney or was Simon cutting her off from the world? If she was losing stock as a leading lady in Hollywood for whatever reason, and did what almost every other actor does when that happens, which is to retreat, then it would be so easy for the media to take that and spin it into the headline that Simon Monjack is cutting Britney off from the world. The press and the media relentlessly attacked Britney Murphy for years, long before Simon Monjack was ever in the picture. They picked her apart from her looks to her weight to who she was dating. When she started dating Ashton Kutcher, he went on Howard Stern, and you can hear it in the documentary. Howard Stern turned Brittany Murphy into the butt of every single one of his jokes while Ashton sat there quietly, not defending her. Howard said to Ashton, like you're dating the fat, ugly chick from Clueless. Brittany was told over and over and over again that if she did not start looking like every other Hollywood actress, she was never going to make it. So she did what she was pressured into doing. She lost weight. She went blonde. She added all of these extensions into her hair. She glammed up. And then all of a sudden, that wasn't good enough for the media either. It was then like, wow. Brittany looks anorexic. She must be throwing up her meals. She's got to be on drugs. She's starving herself. Everybody's worried about her. The media dragged her and dragged her for everything. And none of it had to do with Simon Monjack. None of it. Then when he came along, just go, go and look at the pictures of the two of them together. She looks amazing in every photo. I know. The pictures don't tell the whole story. But Brittany had been victimized by the media long before Simon Monjack was in the picture. He came along and perhaps finally, finally, Brittany felt protected. And maybe that's because the media began attacking him. But the damage to Brittany was already done long before he was ever there. Just go and find a clip of that jackass Howard Stern talking about Brittany. It's in one of the documentaries. I can't remember which one played it. I just about cried when I heard it. It was the first time I'd ever heard anyone say anything like that about Brittany. He called her the fat, ugly chick from Clueless. And then Simon Monjak talks about not wanting an autopsy because he doesn't want his wife's pristine body to be cut into pieces. While that may have been inappropriate to say would it have been better if simon had said yeah i don't want the autopsy because i don't want them cutting up my ugly fat wife from clueless if you ask me the media were the ones who drove Brittany into reclusiveness and when simon came along she was just probably so desperate for love and companionship and for someone to understand her and to not make her feel fat and ugly anymore and to help shield her from it. Simon Monjack may have been a charlatan, he may have been a Svengali, but Brittany's biggest enemy, the thing that attacked her the most, were the very people who were trying to shift the responsibility of what they did to her onto Simon. And they are continuing to do it some dozen or more years later because they still don't want to own what they did to her. They were too busy getting up on these documentaries pointing fingers at simon the man who is no longer around to defend himself or his wife simon monjack did not murder Brittany. i'm shocked that those words are even spoken in any one of those documentaries at this time in 2021 2022 it wasn't that explicitly stated but several times people wondered Oh, did he have something to do with it? He plied her with all of those drugs. She died because of all the drugs that he was giving her. Plot twist. Brittany was sick because she had a compromised immune system due to the fact that she was severely anemic. She was anemic because she had chronically abnormal heavy periods. Her compromised immune system made her vulnerable to becoming sick. She had pneumonia for at least a week, possibly even longer, and it went untreated. She tried treating it herself at home with prescription and over-the-counter medications. And the final ruling of the coroner revealed that her primary cause of death was pneumonia. A contributing factor was the anemia. Those two would have been fatal on their own without the drugs. And that means those prescription drugs that were in her system may or may not have been a factor but she would have died even without them. So how are we still saying 13 years later that Simon Monjack must have done something to her? If anything, and it is something that they have all failed to do, Brittany, her mother, and her husband, is that they failed to help her seek medical treatment or to encourage her to seek medical treatment. Now, gee, let's take a moment to contemplate why that may have been the case. Hmm, I think a simple answer for the reason why Brittany and her family hesitated to take her in for medical intervention is the media. If Brittany showed up at the hospital and checked in for all of those health concerns, what do you think the headlines would have been that day? They would have been all about her weight and her suspected drug addiction and her suspected eating disorders and the role of her mysterious husband and what he's doing to cause her health to decline. I bet anything, that's the reason why Brittany didn't get treated for her illnesses. That's how badly she wanted to avoid the media scrutiny and I cannot blame her. The main thing that I believe Simon did that may have contributed to Brittany's death is that he may not have encouraged her to go to the doctor. He may have even agreed along with her that she shouldn't go. But at the end of the day, Neither he nor anybody else could ever force her or anybody to seek medical attention if they don't want to. Who knows, he may have tried, and she may have refused. We just don't know. Five months after Brittany died on the evening of May 23, 2010, Simon Monjack died in the same Hollywood Hills home that Brittany collapsed in. For the second time sharon murphy was on the phone with 911 desperate for help this time for simon she found him in bed with fluid in his mouth not breathing 911 wanted her to get him onto the ground to begin cpr but we know that simon was very heavy set and she told the operator that she would not be able to move him she tried giving him chest compressions on the bed but it was ineffective when paramedics arrived They got him down onto the floor and attempted life-saving procedures, but it was too late. Simon was dead. He was 40 years old. Assistant Chief Ed Winter found himself back at the same house that he had been at five months earlier talking to Sharon Murphy yet again. And Winter again found a plethora of prescription bottles. No surprise. If anything, I'm sure Simon's pill addiction didn't get any better in the five months since Brittany died. Some of the pill bottles did have the name Sharon Monjack on them. People like to read into that as if they were having an affair and she was using his last name because they were in a relationship. When it could be just another alias in order for the both of them to be able to buy more prescription drugs in order to continue their habit. They were found in Simon's bedroom and Sharon told Winter that they sometimes shared the bed because of their deep sadness and grief over Brittany. I've already gone over that. The media again can spin that every which way they want and i'll say this for the last time in this episode we don't know what goes on behind closed doors and you know what else i don't want to know what it feels like to lose my only child i feel like i can only sit here in judgment of sharon murphy if my daughter was taken from me like that the only person sharon had in this world was suddenly dead some of you listening may have lost a child And perhaps you could sit there and believe that the way sharon coped was totally outlandish but for me i just can't make that call and it's really none of my business sharon has since denied that there were prescription bottles with the name sharon monjack on them and she has denied that she shared a bed with simon and honestly i don't blame her for coming out with these denials i would not want to be sharon murphy today having to continue trying to move forward in this life without my only child. The fact that she's still out there talking to the media? I don't know if I could do it. Simon's cause of death was determined to be similar to Brittany's, pneumonia and anemia. He did have a number of prescriptions and over-the-counter drugs in his system, including Celexa, Cymbalta, Trazodone, Valium, Lorazepam, Vicodin, Lyrica, Propranolol, and Tylenol. And all of them were either at therapeutic or subtherapeutic levels, and they did not contribute to his death. His manner of death was natural. This may be the most unpopular opinion in the world, me rambling into this microphone, standing up for Simon, And standing up for Britney's marriage to him. But do you really listen to this show for the popular opinions? Because when you strip it all away, my opinions really don't matter. The facts are the facts and those won't ever change. Britney Murphy died because of a failure for her to seek medical treatment for two fatal conditions that she had. As much as people want to believe it's Simon's fault that she died because of the drugs or the failure to get her to a doctor... I think a very valid argument can be made to place the blame squarely on the media. Brittany shot to stardom following her 1995 breakout role in clueless. Even though she wasn't the star of the show, she was the star of the show. So for the next decade, Brittany was endlessly hounded, criticized, scrutinized, targeted, followed, picked on and bullied by the media. She put up with it for 10 years. She tried fitting into the Hollywood mold, and it still wasn't enough to get the media off her back. The media is the one who drove her weight down, not Simon. If Britney turned to drugs or drinking to cope, the media probably had a hand in that as well. If Britney retreated to the privacy and the seclusion of her home, that was probably the media's fault too. And it had been going on years before Simon was ever around. And I believe that when Simon did come along, that both he and Brittany were at the weakest points in their lives. They were both seeking protection from their own demons. Brittany was running from the media and the scrutiny. People like Howard Stern telling the world that she's the fat, ugly chick from Clueless. That's what the world had to say to Britney. And that happened in 2003 while she was dating one of Hollywood's most eligible bachelors in Ashton Kutcher. That was after she had gotten thin and blonde. Yet Howard Stern is still out there calling her the fat ugly chick. That's how Britney was treated. Can you really blame her for running and hiding behind the gates of her home? It's probably a very desperate and lonely place to be. All she had in the world was her mother. And their relationship had already reached a turning point where it was Brittany taking care of her. They had nobody else. She had no brothers or sisters or father in her life. It was just them. I feel that very deeply in my heart and soul. It feels very, very familiar. Except I have a kid. Brittany didn't. She desperately wanted to be loved and cared for and protected because her mother was no longer that person in her life since Brittany had become the caregiver and the protector. So along comes Simon who I think was in an equally vulnerable place in his life too. He may not have been the greatest guy in the world He had some shady dealings in his background. He wanted to marry up and he was able to use his Englishman charm to get there. He lied about who he was and what he had with women that he was with in the past. But when it came time to put his money where his mouth was and he wasn't able to deliver they dumped him. But when he found Brittany she was rich He didn't have to pretend anymore. His charm was enough to win her over. She was very smitten with him and his Britishy ways. Simon Monjack did not have to bring millions of dollars to the table because Brittany already had that. What he did bring was love and companionship and protection. Everything that Brittany had been looking for. I said it earlier. The two of them came together because of their weaknesses, not because of their strengths. I think they filled a need for one another that they were unable to get from anyone anywhere else. And when you bring two very weak people together, it's probably not going to end well. And it didn't. Both Simon and Brittany eerily died of the same causes. Pneumonia and anemia. The media and the public opinion was that Simon failed to get Brittany help. But who's to say it wasn't the other way around too? Simon was sick. He was anemic. He clearly had a really bad prescription pill problem. Why didn't Brittany demand that he seek medical attention? It may be as simple as he didn't want to. I would say it's probably likely that neither one of them wanted to step outside the gates of their home in Hollywood Hills, because that's where those who were ready to attack were lying in wait. People Magazine, Radar Online, TMZ, E News, Page Six, Perez Hilton, Us Weekly. That's what the two of them were avoiding. I think they found comfort in each other and in their shared addiction and it wasn't Simon who was victimizing Brittany, it was the media. And not only did they victimize Brittany, they turned their venom onto Simon once they no longer had her to target. Why in the world would Simon want her dead? What reason could there possibly be? What would his motives be to want her gone? Did he play a role in her death? Maybe. I do think that Simon was just as weak as Brittany was, and she really needed somebody much stronger than him to fill her void. But you know what? So did he. Because once she was gone, Simon was set on a path towards his own untimely death. I think both he and Brittany's mom then turned to each other when they lost her, and it just played out so awkwardly because of the media. But the two of them still needed to try and survive. Simon needed the home and the money that all went to Sharon, and Sharon just needed somebody to help her figure out how to go on without her child. And it's as simple as that. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to join the Facebook group. Follow me everywhere on social media. I'm going to get moving on the Patreon episode. So for all of you waiting for that, fear not, it is on its way. And stay tuned past the end of this for the promo from the Strictly Stocking podcast. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.
1: I'm Jamie Beebe.
0: And
5: I'm Jake Deptula.
1: We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking, brought to you from Podcast One.
5: Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words.
1: Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know?
5: we're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked
1: so tune in to strictly stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking
5: listen on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast